Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Here's everything you might have missed in Thor Love and Thunder. Thor Love and Thunder is here at last, and with it comes a metric ton of Easter eggs. We're going to break them all down for you in just a moment, but to do so, guess what? We have to spoil this movie. So if you haven't seen Thor Love and Thunder yet and you're worried about spoilers, leave now while you still can. Are you thinking what I think you're thinking? I'm thinking it. What are we thinking? Thinking what? I'm thinking it too. Okay, let's get into it, shall we? The film opens with a Gorigen story as we see how Christian Bale's murderous villain Gore the God Butcher went from God-fearing to God-spearing. It plays out remarkably similar to the events of Thor God of Thunder number 6, with Gore unable to save his child from starving to death. In the comics, Gore tells his dying child they'll find a forest where they will never go hungry again. Lo and behold, Gore does find that forest in this movie, but no help is in sight. What he does find is his signature weapon, the Necrosword, lying at the feet of his indolent god, Rapu. In the comics, the Necrosword is connected to Venom, of all characters. It was the very first symbiote, all black, created by the dark god Null, which took the shape of a sword of living darkness. And while the Necrosword definitely seems possessed by an evil entity in this movie, it seems like hopes for Venom were null and void. Now, much like the comics, the weapon slowly corrupts its user, and it's capable of creating shadowy murder monsters known as Black Berserkers. Moving on, Jane Foster's plotline about dealing with cancer is also straight out of the comics, but her comment about Interstellar being a good way to explain wormholes is straight out of real life. The black hole simulations and statistical models created for the Christopher Nolan movie were published in a scientific journal and used by other astrophysicists to help with their research as well. Of course, Jane Foster proves that nothing is quite so effective for explaining wormholes as a pencil and a simple sheet of paper folded in half. We also get brief appearances by Darcy, who we first met as Dr. Eric Selvig's intern and Jane's lab assistant in the first two Thor films. And then we see Dr. Selvig himself via video call. Now, unfortunately, unless Jane needs to stop a corrupt government organization trying to murder a witch or to streak at Stonehenge, neither of them are any real help for her in her current state. Now, Jane originally wielded Mjolnir in the comics in 1978's What If Number 10, but the plotline took on a much more powerful life in Jason Aaron's God of Thunder run decades later. In the comics, Mjolnir transforms Jane into the mighty Thor, but it also purges all the chemicals and toxins from her body, including her chemotherapy medication. And much like in the movie, being a hero comes with a terrible price for Jane. When we catch up with Thor in the Guardians of the Galaxy, they're on the planet Indigar, which is straight out of Jason Aaron and Asad Riddick's Thor God of Thunder number 1. King Yakon alludes to the fact that their gods were murdered in this movie. In the comics, Thor's discovery that the Skylords of Indigar have been murdered is what puts him on Gore's trail in present day. With his red vest and Yggdrasil the World Tree shirt, Thor's costume here evokes his Thunderstrike look from the comics, when a character named Eric Masterson briefly assumed the God of Thunder's mantle for a time. Thor also does his best Jean-Claude Van Damme impression when stopping the forces of Huska the Horrible in style. While previous Thor movies really put a spotlight on Thor's family, 
Thor Love and Thunder is very much a family affair behind the scenes, especially for Chris Hemsworth. His daughter India played Love, the daughter of Gore the God Butcher. His wife Elsa Pataki played the woman on the wolf. His son Tristan played the child version of Thor in the opening montage. And his daughter Sasha played an Asgardian child. Hemsworth's brother Luke also reprised his role as Thor in the Asgardian theater troupe from Ragnarok alongside Matt Damon as Loki and Sam Neill as Odin. This time, though, they're joined by Melissa McCarthy as Hela and her husband Ben Falcone as the director. Now, the Hemsworth family weren't the only ones getting in on the fun here. Producer Brad Winderbaum's wife and kids played tourists on the ship in New Asgard, and Taika Waititi and Natalie Portman's kids were also among the Asgardian children as well. And speaking of Asgardian kids, Heimdall's son Astrid wanting to go by the name Axel is a fun nod to Axel Rose from Guns N' Roses, a band who plays heavily on this film soundtrack. We were also going to see some other familiar faces like Jeff Goldblum as the Grand Master and Peter Dinklage as Eitri the Dwarf who helped Thor forge Stormbreaker as well. We were also going to see Game of Thrones star Lena Headey in a brand new role, but unfortunately those scenes didn't make the cut. As for Loki, he technically does appear in tattoo form after Zeus flicks Thor a little too hard. Also returning to this movie is another fan favorite, Thor's roommate Daryl, who appeared in the Team Thor mockumentary shorts to explain what the hell he was doing during Civil War. Daryl now works as a tour guide on New Asgard. As advertised in the first episode of Ms. Marvel, New Asgard is home to all manner of Avengers-themed tours for people curious to see gods on Earth. From an ice cream parlor dubbed Infinity Cones to the Black Raven pub named for Odin's ravens from Norse mythology, it's a tourist trap from top to bottom. And speaking of mystical animals, we do also get the introduction of Thor's goats from the comics Toothnasher and Toothgrinder. While they're never explicitly named as such in the movie and are more directly inspired by the 2013 meme remix of Taylor Swift's I Knew You Were Trouble, these mighty steeds who pulled Thor's chariot in the comics first appeared in 1976's Thor Annual No. 5, and even better, they are straight out of Norse mythology. After following a distress call, Thor and Korg find Lady Sif, who sadly missed her post-battle death window to safely enter Valhalla. She's lying in front of the corpse of Falagar the Behemoth in a nearly picture-perfect recreation of this panel from Thor God of Thunder number 3. There are several other moments in this movie that are also straight out of the comics, including a brief glimpse at the Sky Lords of Indigar rotting on meat hooks, just as Thor found them in God of Thunder number 1. Thor and the gang eventually head to Omnipotent City, an extra-dimensional nexus for the gods of every pantheon that first appeared in Thor God of Thunder number 3. Among the crowded assembly of gods, we can spot a wide array of recognizable characters, including Bast, the Egyptian cat goddess-turned-panther deity of Wakanda, Bao, the adorable god of dumplings, a large dragon that resembles the great protector from Shang-Chi, and an unnamed Aztec god who's almost definitely Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent. There's Dionysus, the Greek god of wine, Minerva, the Roman goddess of wisdom, Artemis, the Greek goddess of the hunt, what appears to be the evil Japanese god Mikaboshi, and a Maori goddess who may be Tumatuenga, the goddess of war. Plus, there's Nini the Nani, also played by Taika Waititi. He is a Cronin god sitting on a throne made of scissors, because much like the game instructs us, rock beats scissors. We also see a pair of Celestials who appear to be Gamiel the Manipulator and either Zeron the Tester or the Celestial Gardener. It's a little difficult to tell. Of course, best of all is Zeus himself, played by Russell Crowe with an Oscar-worthy accent. Zeus has been a long-time part of the Marvel Universe, but apparently Russell Crowe almost played a very different character. That's right, he almost played Satan. According to concept art, Crow almost played the devil himself. I know, I know, still no Mephisto, but I guess that some things are a bit too much to ask, Kevin Feige. 
Later on on the goat boat, we see a neon sign for Cocktails and Dreams, a tribute to the 1988 Tom Cruise starring film Cocktail, which was directed by another New Zealand-born director, Roger Donaldson. And oddly enough, those space dolphins they glimpse are straight out of the comics, but not the Marvel comics. There are space dolphins in DC Comics in Mr. Miracle number 13. Now, probably not an intentional homage, but fun nonetheless. Now, eventually, our heroes make their way to a much more terrifying place, the Shadow Realm, from which the Necrosword seemingly draws its power. It first appeared in 1976's Thor Annual Number 5, and it might be connected to the Abyss, where the Elder God Null later ruled in the King in Black comics. Here, though, it's something that stands in stark opposition to the light-powered Nord dimension on Ms. Marvel, and it adds in yet another realm for the MCU to contend with, in addition to its ever-expanding array of multiversal realities. Things are getting weird. Next up, since we've covered this at length in previous videos, I will briefly touch on the characters we see referenced in the Altar of Eternity. We see powerful cosmic beings, including the Living Tribunal, Uatu the Watcher, Mistress Death, Eon, Infinity, and a Celestial that's either Arashem or maybe the One Above All. When we finally meet Eternity, though, this metaphysical embodiment looks perfect, just straight out of the comics, and even better, it aligns with a moment in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. When Star-Lord gets all starry-eyed, he says that he can see Eternity. Chances are he probably caught a glimpse of the guy that we see in this movie. But for more on all of these cosmic beings, make sure you check out our recent video breakdown. And last but not least, when Korg reveals that his love interest is a guy named Dwayne, that's almost definitely a silly nod to Dwayne the Rock Johnson, because what are Cronin's made of? Rocks, baby! Over here, a pile of rocks waving at you. Here. Now, as for the arrival of Hercules in the post credit scene, Jane Foster heading to Valhalla, and what that all means for Thor 5, well, make sure you check out our ending and post credits explained video, which I'll link to in the description below. Anyway, folks, there you have it. That is everything we spotted in Thor Love and Thunder. Now, there are definitely more Easter eggs waiting to be uncovered, and we'll be ready with a comically large magnifying glass when the film is available on digital and Disney+. In the meantime, though, we have plenty of other Thor Love and Thunder deep dives just waiting for you over on Nerdist. For now, tell us, what did you think of this movie? Did you spot anything that we missed? Well, as they say, better late than not at all. <laughs> Let us know in the comments below, and for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com.